Ives is that these are all part of our community and what we get to experience all together. And we've got a lot of fun friends from out of town that were here for the wedding too. So that's, that's a cool bonus on top of all of that. And can't even begin to mention you all because then we'd be ready to go. Uh, we are uh, studying out in, in the Gospel of Luke and, and making our way over to Luke chapter 11. So go ahead and turn over there, please. All right, Luke 11. And where, where we were last week, if you recall, was that Jesus was speaking to crowds. And as he was speaking to them, he performed a very definitive sign. It was a sign that was prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 35. And it was one of the rather clear signs that the Messiah was coming amongst us. And that was the sign to loose the stopped tongue. It's, it was very technical language that was used in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35. And it's the, the same word that comes to us in, in Mark's gospel and in a similar sense here in Luke's gospel as it speaks about this very clear miracle. And rather than the crowds all looking at him saying, well, shut my mouth. Here's the Messiah. What, what should we do? Instead, the first wave of volleys against Jesus is, ah, you're probably doing that by an evil power, not by a, a godly power. And Jesus then goes on and he addresses those who would make such an illogical argument. And we looked at that last week. And then the next group, though, said, after some said, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. And then others tested him by asking him for a sign from heaven. Now, this second group is whom he will address in the section that we will look at here. And that is the section I was just reading from verse 16. And now we're going to be looking at verse 29 as the crowds get even bigger. And as the crowds get even bigger, the other question is still hanging out there. Well, sure. How about another sign? And here's where Jesus jumps in. And now, before I begin to read this, it's very easy in a place where we have so much, and even where we have so much Jesus, to take him for granted. And that's what they had. That's what they had here. They had Jesus in their midst. They had the Son of God preaching and teaching and healing and loving right in amongst them. And sometimes when you have so much, you have a much greater capacity to take amazing things for granted. Remember the first trip that Debbie and I took to India and we were walking through the streets of one of the rougher neighborhoods. If It's all relative, of course, there. But, but as we were going through the streets of Chennai, heading to the home of, of one of the members of the church, just to be able to spend a little bit of time in one of their homes and see what it's like to, to live as they do. Um, but as we were going there, we heard as we were walking through the streets, we just heard the sound of children laughing with pure joy. I mean, it was higher and higher pitched, and it was just beautiful, just the most beautiful sound right. of children laughing. And when we turned the corner, we, we saw the scene, and it was a bunch of, bunch of kids playing, playing soccer, and they were doing it with just crump, crumpled up papers that they had somehow fashioned into a ball. Yeah. 
and having the best time of their lives with a garbage ball. And I think, oh, because we, we went like right after Christmas time and, and I was thinking, oh my goodness, think of all the gifts that everybody we know has just given to their kids. And after a couple minutes, you know, this shiny new remote control, amazing microchip design product is suddenly like, eh, okay, it's nice for a moment. What else, what else you got? Is there anything else under the tree right now? And oh, I, mean, I could just, I could just feel. It, but I knew that's not just like our kids or your kids. It was, it was, it was me as well. That yeah. I get to that place so quickly, yeah. and we, and we all do. And it's a very dangerous thing. And to think that we don't is just to kid ourselves. Right. And to think that we don't, even with something so fantastic as Jesus, is also a dangerous arrogance on our part, because it is very easy. When we've got Jesus, Jesus all the time, we're in a great body of Christ, we've got the Bible, it's so easily accessible, we've got audio Bibles, we've got computer Bibles, you name it, that it's very easy to, to also think, all right, yeah, Jesus, but I don't know, is there a way you can maybe tell a story to make them come to life better? Uh, is there a video clip, perhaps, that we can have so that, you know, maybe kind of Jesus could kind of, you know, shake me up just a, a little bit more? And, hey, I think if we're honest with ourselves... We think that. We think that probably when we come in here, too. All right, what you got today, Ed? Huh? Come on, monkey boy. What you got? You should clap a little. Let's get this thing going. Uh, and it, it, it is, it, it's something that affects us, affects us all, always. And it's something that we have to consciously strive to fight against whether that be in our prayer life and every time that we encounter Jesus in the scriptures, that we really do have the, the prayer that God calls us to have in Psalm 119. Oh, Lord, open my eyes so I can see wonderful things in your word. Amen. And even as we head towards looking at Jesus now, he gives us this very caution because the crowds have become quite fickle. And, and now they're like, OK, so you fulfilled like the great sign of Isaiah 35. All right, so you've healed many, so you've fed thousands and then thousands again. All right, walking on water, pretty cool. Ah, I'll take that. Oh, yeah, the demon that scared the bejesus out of us, you stood firm and were like, bam, you, you cast it out and, you know, into the swine and off they went. Yeah, that was pretty good, too. And all right, I got I to gotta admit that, you know, when, when you were able to kind of stare down the Pharisees and really show them for their hypocrisy and you were cool the whole time and loving the whole, pretty, pretty sweet. Oh, and that, that whole compassion to the leper thing. Yeah, good move. Nice PR move, by the way. I mean, this is where they're at at this point. But when we start to have that, that callous that comes over our heart and that dullness, that's time we're like, ah, I need to go and have a shake-up time of coming before the Lord and to recognize a recalibration of just how amazing Jesus is. And he's so much greater than anything that they had ever encountered before. But with all of this great privilege is not just the chance to be moved or entertained, but what he'll say to us here, with all of this great privilege is also greater responsibility. So in verse 29, the crowds increased and Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it 
except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. And then he picks a second astounding story from the Old Covenant. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. And so Jesus is shaking up this crowd and out of love, hitting them where they need to be hit. And they're a Jewish crowd. And there are a couple of things that don't sit well with it with a Jew. One is a Jew expects that a judgment day, they're going to sit in judgment of the Gentiles. And every guy in that crowd expects that he'll sit in judgment of any woman as well. That's just the culture that he's addressing at the moment. And Jesus does a little switcheroo on them. And he's like, by the way, my, my Jewish friends that are all here, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, lawyers, that's, that's the whole crowd that we, we, we heard about from, from earlier. Uh, by the way, you're going to be judged by the Gentiles of hated Nineveh. You're going to be judged by that woman from Sheba, from Yemen, who came up here to be able to check out Solomon. That's who's going to judge you if this is your approach to all it is that God is trying to give you in all of his bounty and all of his grace. So who are these references that Jesus makes and how, what should we make, make, make out of this as he references to us Jonah and Solomon? And then their audiences, respectively, Jonah's audience was the Ninevites. That's, a, that's the capital of, of Assyria. If you remember VeggieTales, they're the people who hit each other in the face with fish. Remember that? That's who we're talking about. And then, and then the queen of the south, I mean, she's, she's the ruler of, of, of southern Arabia Peninsula there, which would kind of be like Yemen today. Uh, and, and she travels to be able to sit at the peak of Israel's grandeur at their great king and wise king Solomon. And both the Ninevites and the queen of the south are radically converted. They radically repent at the preaching of a relative clown of a prophet of, of Jonah. And, and sadly, that is probably the, the, the best description of, of Jonah. If you, if you think about all of the, the prophets of the Old Testament, the one that Jesus picks is the one that runs away. Here I am, send me. Oh wait, never mind. I know it's God. I know you've asked me, but I'm actually, I'm out of here. He's, he's a comic figure. And this mighty prophet chosen by God runs away. Then he becomes a problem passenger on his boat and he's thrown into the sea. Then he becomes the dinner that the great fish can't stomach. And then he becomes this reluctant preacher who goes to a city of 120,000 people who don't know any better, according to God in, in the book of Jonah. And as he preaches to them, they all repent. And rather than be astounded at the power of the word of God, he instead shakes his fist at God and says, I told you so. I knew if you made me go there, this was going to happen. You're going to repent. And then fickle worshiper of God that he is, 
He gets more upset with God over a worm that chews down his plant than he is of any sort of concern over the 120,000 people that he saves. It, it, it's, right. it's most interesting as you zero in on, on Jonah's only, I think, 42 verses long. But in the very center of it, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh. This is after he's been spewed out of the uh, great fish. Uh, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a large, very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he, the king, issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink. But, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. That's an amazing response because uh, Jonah didn't even give them an option of mercy. He just said to them, 40 days and this whole place is getting burned to the ground. And then he drops the mic and walks on out. And I mean, astoundingly, the people of Nineveh respond to his reluctant prophecy. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, this is now uh, Jonah, I was reading Jonah 3, this is Jonah 4, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, all slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than to live. (laughs) That guy helps 120,000 people repent. And if they can repent at that half-hearted message from a reluctant prophet, and we've got Jesus, what's the expectation on us? And likewise, as, as Jesus says to the Jews in his audience, if, if you're going to become so calloused and spoiled, really, about having so much of me, that suddenly nothing that I do startles you and awakens you and realigns you to repent? Well then, how about we let the Ninevites hang out with you on Judgment Day? And let's see how you feel then about how you responded to all it was that I was trying to be able to bring your way. And God truly is a God of compassion and love, and he does show. And and this God of compassion and love, look at all that he's given to us. I mean, over and over and over again, all it is that, that, that we've been given. And, but by the way, I, you know, th- this is one I, I especially want to make sure the teens realize. Sometimes teens do feel like, 
Well, if maybe I had a rougher run, grace would have a bigger impact, and I'd be flung forward into a more amazing, loving life for God. That's just the opposite of what Jesus is telling you right here. If you've been given all this privilege, it's not because you're all that. These privileges which we enjoy are actually now responsibilities for which we will have to answer. Your parents, your kingdom kids class, every VeggieTales that they bought you and had you sit through, how many times you watched Upside Down, you can sing all the songs. All of that, all of that brought, brought together is, is meant to cause you to appreciate all the more a Jesus who loves you and wants you to have every single chance possible. But it's not just for our team. It goes for all of us. You know, to have the gospel of Luke in the first century, that would be over 10 years wage. You've got it in your hands right now. And for those of you who maybe came and you didn't have it, you probably pulled it up on your phone without even thinking that you needed the gospel of Luke with you today. I mean, we have every advantage. And so for, for us to, to recognize, hey, if they could repent, oh my goodness, what it is that, that we need to be looking at repentance. But let me look at this next character as well. And, and this one is Solomon. I had to edit this picture a little bit. Now, Solomon, at the peak of his powers, is met at just this time by the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South. And it is during this time that the Bible tells us in both 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9 that Solomon had greater power and splendor and wisdom than any other king on the face of the earth at that time. His military might, his prowess was legendary throughout. And through the trade routes, apparently even down to Yemen, the Queen of the South was able to hear of him. And she heard of such wonders that she wanted to go, as other kings had done, and really find out, is it really true? She has heard, but is it really true? Unlike these people listening to Jesus now, who are not only hearing of it, but seeing it themselves, and rather than saying, oh my goodness, it's more than I imagined, they're all here saying, okay, it's all right, but what else you got? But she comes, not to the Son of God, but she comes to Solomon. A wise king, but a flawed king. It's going to be right after her visit that Solomon is enticed by foreign wives and he even bows down and worships foreign gods. But it is interesting that uh, upon her visit, she says to the king, the report and I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom. It's true. But I did not believe what they said until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half of the greatness of your wisdom was told to me. You have far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the God. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as king to rule for the Lord your God. Because of the love of your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever... He has made you king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. Again, that story can be found in 2 Chronicles 9 and in 1 Kings chapter 10. And she is an interesting seeker 
in that she only hears rumors, perhaps through the trade route. There are lots of legends, by the way, of the story of Sheba and Solomon. Many, many legends. They're, they're in the Quran, they're in Islamic traditions, they're in Egyptian traditions. They abound. Uh, many of them actually include this interesting idea that perhaps the Queen of the South was a particularly powerful sovereign ruler in that area, and uh, strength was considered through body hair. Hang with me on this. Uh, just, as, just as, you know, Absalom, with so much of his hair, at the time of his hair, was able to rise up and overthrow David, just as Samson, when his hair would grow long, that was a great sign of his strength. Well, it was also reputed through, through different uh, traditions and legends that the Queen of the South had quite hairy legs and perhaps even had the, the, the hooves of, a, of an ibex. Uh, an ibex is an animal that was associated with moon worship, which was also going on in, um, in Yemen. So Solomon, well, one of the things that she would, would have come to Solomon for, according to legend, was to kind of test him with riddles. And one, one of the, the great uh, signs that you have been undone by another who is more clever than you is that your secrets are revealed. And so it is said that when she arrived, Solomon wanted to trick her into raising her skirt to be able to expose the, the, the hairiness of her legs. And so the way that he did this is that when she arrived in his palace and she saw the great throne, but she was also startled because before her was a, a glass uh, corridor that would lead to his throne. And the glass was such pure crystal and right underneath that glass was a stream with, with, with fish in it, with some sort of a carp uh, that was in this stream. And so as she crosses the threshold, she it seems as though she's about to step into water. So she thinks she's about to step into water. So she raises her skirt, thinking she's going to step down into water to approach the throne. But in fact, she doesn't. She, she hits land and she realizes then and there, oh, I'm, I'm in, the, in, in the presence of someone much greater than I. And she's overwhelmed and, and ultimately, as legend goes, is, is converted over uh, by the great cleverness and the wisdom of Solomon himself. Anyway, interesting story, right? But, but, but just a story, and, and they abound. Uh, but having said all of that, Jesus is not just wise like Solomon. Jesus is wisdom himself. Yeah. He is the wisdom of Solomon not just one who is clever, one who has great parables, one who can answer the riddles of the day. This is Jesus. Jesus as a prophet is greater without comparison to Jonah. How dare anyone compare Jesus to Jonah? Jesus to Solomon, to all Jews, the high point, the golden age of Israel, Jesus makes Solomon, again, look like one who is flawed to the core. And ultimately, Jesus then sets up this, this comparison here. All right, let's, let's see which, which is greater, which has the greater weight. Jesus or Jonah and Solomon? Well, in fact, it's no contest. It's Jesus by a landslide over, over both, of, both of them. And for us, I think we've got to recognize, even as we see the, the greatness of Jesus, that it's time to get shaken up again by Jesus. 
it's time to realize there are a lot of things out there that try to set itself up as fulfilling in your life. But it's got, it doesn't hold a candle to Jesus. There are a lot of things that promise you peace. It's an illusory peace compared to Jesus. Who of us haven't tried a hundred different self-destructive, fruitless ways to try to get our life together, only to finally have it come together in Jesus? So I would beat myself up with selfish ambition over and over and over if I could just get to the next rung on the corporate ladder. The next rung on the corporate ladder. Then I will have arrived. Then it will be fantastic. Only to realize as I got to the next office and maybe the sweeter desk and the sweeter responsibility, it only took maybe about five, ten minutes of sitting there and realizing that didn't do it. I'm still the same person that I was. And this ultimate how I've arrived fulfillment that I thought would be mine was really just more life in an empty suit that I was. And I was still a shallow mess of a selfishly ambitious, conceited, arrogant man. Nothing, nothing to commend me whatsoever, despite how good I looked on my own resume, which of course I wrote myself. And all of that was hollow, all of that was shallow, all of that was just, you know, smoke and mirrors. And yet, even in the midst of all of that conceit and arrogance, Jesus came into my life. And that's been the great difference ever since. That's been the peace. That's been the significance. That's been the gravitas. That's been the meaning that was always missing from my life. But it was also the realization that I got to readjust. Or in other words, i got to repent. I've got to repent. As, as Jesus says here, hey, if they repented at the preaching of Jonah, now something greater than Jonah is here. And this is what he says to the crowds that are asking for a sign. And what is the sign that Jesus gives them? Just that, the message of repentance. You want a sign? Here you go. Repent. Because judgment is coming. There's no doubt the judgment is coming. I can't make it any more clear as the son of God. He says to them that judgment is coming. And by the way, I'm not just here to condemn, he says, but I come as a gift. I think this holiday season, we recognize this. God didn't have to do this. He gave us Jesus. Came to earth to intervene for us. And as the noise of Christmas can squelch that out, Let's step back at every moment and recognize, no, wait a minute. All of this is a sign from Jesus. But the sign is to repent. Now, repent is not just, oh, let me cry a few tears and say that I'm sorry and think that that, that'll make it all better. That isn't even close to the definition of biblical repentance. It's the popular definition of repentance because it's been corrupted so much over time. Of, oh, I'm just so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. You know, people came to John the Baptist at the beginning of Luke's gospel saying they were sorry and confessing. And John was still like, hey, that's fine. But I want to see you bear the fruit of repentance. I want to see the difference in the way that you make sense of your life and your God and this world. And I want to see it borne out in the way that you live. Now, if you really believe that Jesus is Lord rather than you, what's different in your life? If you really believe there's a God and there's a heaven and a hell, if you really believe that Jesus is intervening for your sake, 
What is it that he really wants you to do? What is it that he wants you to understand? That is the idea of what Jesus is using here is the word metanoia. Meta from metamorphosis, change. Meta is change. Noia from like paranoia. Uh, paranoia is a warped worldview. Well, metanoia is a changed worldview. It's that thanks to Jesus, you suddenly make sense of everything differently. It's as though actually scales fall from your eyes, you open up and you get it. Rather than be dulled into a sense of complacency by the white noise of the life that's around you, and even by what could become the white noise of Jesus, 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 in so many anemic ways, Jesus wants to bust that out, grab you by the lapels, and say, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Don't regard me in that way. I'm here to intervene for you. I got something important to say. Repent. Repent. Do not keep on keeping on with the way that you're making sense of stuff. Do not think that you're going to win the game of life playing by the rules that you're playing by right now. If you think just making your parents happy and having a double life is going to keep you going for a few more days, repent. You got to bust up those rules. Those rules, you're going to be at judgment day and you're going to be looking at a Ninevite standing next to you. You're going to go, duh, Jesus told me this. Ah, it's all true. It's all true. If your rules by which we're playing the game of life, again, metanoia is where you change all the rules by which you go through your your, uh, game of life. If your rules are just simply try to be a nice person and that's about it. Well, that's not repentance. Repentance is seeing everything differently. When you recognize what it is that Jesus has come to do for you. And by the way, when you get that, not only do you stop smoking and drinking and beating your wife and cheating on your husband and flirting in the office and uh, heading after pornographic thrills and uh, lying and uh, going after greed. Not only does all of that end, but then you also recognize through repentance that, oh my goodness, wait a minute, I'm here to serve God rather than to have these little fleshly indulgences that are supposed to be in my life. And one of the great signs of repentance, by the way, is that you begin to talk to other people about Jesus. You just can't help it when you totally change and you make sense of the world through a different lens. You can't help it. And why is it, I think, such a good litmus test? Because all other change is, for the most part, reinforced by polite society. Let me give you an example. Let's say Donald um, stops speeding and taking the, um, the, the cut through the, uh, the parking lot up there. People be like, all right, good job. You know, you have a very noticeable car. I, I noticed that it's, you know, kind of uh, way, way, way to go. Good job. Right. He may not do that because of Jesus. He may do that because, you know, his friends at work or polite society is going to reinforce it. Right. Let's say let's say Sega starts stops beating on Dwayne. Right. And the neighbors in their complex are like, man, I'm glad to see, you know, I mean. It was kind of embarrassing. I didn't know what to say. You're so loud. You're in the next apartment. But, you know, you seem to really, you know, there's peace over there. You know, good job. Good job, Sega. Amen. Right? I mean, I can go on, right? But, 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 but you pick it. You know, you, 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 stop, you stop cheating on your expense reports. You stop cheating on your taxes. You stop coming home drunk. You stop smoking. You, stop, you, you pick the thing. Polite society is going to give you the golf clap. But the minute in your repentance, you also begin to share about Jesus with that same polite society goes to 
that, right? You go from golf clap to Heisman in, in an instant. And I, I remember this. I remember, I was, I remember in, you know, in Carrollton, Texas, when, when the gospel was really coming to me. And I remember you being at barbecues in the neighborhood before I was a Christian. And they go, oh, you got beer. This is awesome. You guys ever do a shotgun? Here, let me show you doing a shotgun. Hey, yeah, how about that? You want to try one? And, you know, they're looking at me in horror. And I'm like, oh, maybe I better not, like, drink like that among these people. You know? Maybe I'll stop dropping those expletives among everybody. You know, my loud, you know, cursing this and that. Hey, but, but suddenly I backed off of all. And I did. I really began to back off of all those things. And I, and I saw the golf clap from the neighbors of, of, uh, of, of Car- you know, Black Oaks Drive in Carrollton, Texas. And, you know, like, oh, you know it's, it's nice to see you, you getting your life together in all those different ways. But I had not really repented. I was just smart enough to realize everything that made me popular in my fraternity does not make me popular on Black Oak Drive. <laughs> so I'm going to rearrange. I know how to play this game. And I'm going to be a polite member of society. And... You know, I have everybody, you know, kind of, you know, think I'm all right. But then, then on top of all of that, the gospel came to me. Jesus came to me. My eyes were opened up. Something greater than anything else came to me. And, and I, how can I not share this with everybody as Jesus calls me to? Yeah. And suddenly at those same barbecues where I'm like, yeah, but not only that, not only the drinking, not only that, but oh my goodness, now I see, I see the meaning of life, I see my reason for being, I see what it is that God's plan is for every one of us, I see how it is to have real peace and to be redeemed, please, would you like to sit down and study the Bible, I mean, God, it's, it's opened my eyes, it's been incredible, and, and suddenly all of those people that were so happy that I stopped drinking were thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind him going out to happy hour again. <laughs> And, and, and yeah, and all of a sudden, no, 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 there, there, there was no, you know, social reinforcement that exists anymore. Suddenly then they're, you know, coming in the back of their house, you know, through the garage door opener, you know, seeing me out there as I'm, I'm mowing the lawn. Suddenly they find ways to, you know, do everything through their backyard because they know that I'm just excited about Jesus and they're going to hear about it. And, and they're keeping a wide berth in, in all of these areas. And again, if Jesus has come into your life, and has not affected you so much with repentance where you're actually telling people about Jesus and you're trying to help other people to repent, well then, I don't know if you really have had the greatness of Jesus come into your life. You've somehow taken Jesus on your own terms and received him at a level of comfort for you and polite society. That should not matter at all. Your interaction, your relationship with Jesus your Jesus should affect you to such a degree that you're not constrained by polite society, but you have nothing but just unbridled enthusiasm for Jesus and the repentance that he has brought you. And when you've tasted that and know that it's good, you know you can't help but to be able to head out and be able to share that with so many others. And so my final encouragement slash application here is if we're going to really get beyond this, we had to do two things. Make a list, check it twice, of all my privileges in Christ. I didn't have any idea until just now of the poetic nature of that beautiful application. And then secondly, share with someone the repentance that Jesus expects of you. You know what it is. The Holy Spirit has busted you upside the head and heart to, to, to make it clear to you. But 
don't let it be that you squelch the beauty of that, of that privilege that's been given to you. Don't go into the, the dullness that, that this group here that Jesus spoke to had gotten into. Instead, let's let the traction really gain hold on every one of us. And imagine every one of us making sure that we latch on to the very repentance that's being made clear to us through Jesus, through his spirit, what we look like communally, together, as we all decide not to get back into the keep on keeping on callousness of, of some sort of communal corruption of Christianity, but instead that we really do allow all of that to fall to the side, see Jesus squarely, and pursue him with all that we've got. Amen. Amen.